Take your Bible, turn to Exodus chapter 12, starting in verse 1. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb, according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat. You shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then... They shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted. Its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning, you shall burn. In this manner, you shall eat it with your belt fastened, sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses, for if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day you shall hold a holy assembly, and on the seventh day a holy assembly. No work shall be done on those days, but what everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared by you. 
And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread, for on this very day I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. In the first month, from the fourteenth day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the twenty-first day of the month at evening. For seven days, no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is a sojourner or a native of the land. You shall eat nothing leavened. In all your dwelling places, you shall eat unleavened bread. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel in the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin none of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lentil and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this rite as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt But when he struck the Egyptians, sorry, when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshiped. Then the people of Israel went and did so. As the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. Let's ask God's blessing upon his word. Oh, God, give light. Passages like this do not resonate with us so easily. Give light. May your spirit be at work, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. It's a cell phone. It's an ordinary cell phone. There's nothing particularly fancy about this one. It has my children's picture on the back. You ever kind of pause and think about the technology that goes into these things? It was really actually kind of shocking. Like, let's take the computer element out of it. Let's take that out. Just think about kind of the wireless technologies that are involved in this one little tiny piece of equipment. It has the ability wirelessly to connect to telephone lines in some form or fashion, and I'm being intentionally reductionistic. This one also has the ability to connect via Bluetooth, which is an entirely different method of technology. Some of you have phones, mainly made by LG, that have the ability to function as TV remotes. Did you know that? You can actually program it so that it'll be the, the remote to your television. 
the ones that absolutely melt my brain are the ones that have wireless charging capability. That is the one that I just, my science development is not high enough to understand how you can take your phone and place it on top of a pad and it charges it without a wire. How does the electricity get into the phone? It's magic, right? Uh, It's amazing. You know, the amazing thing is all of those technologies that I just mentioned, now they were refined by later very clever women and men, but all of those technologies were invented in their base level by one guy. Anybody want to take a guess in your head privately? Guess what year he was born? 1856 is the correct answer. Nikola Tesla, a name that some of you are familiar with, more likely familiar because of the car company, which has now surpassed Volvo, has like the sixth largest car company in America. Nikola Tesla is one of the greatest minds in American history. He born in 1856 in uh, kind of Eastern Europe, eventually migrated over to the United States, uh, would change his citizenship here, and would have a long-running kind of feud with the greatest scientific minds of a generation. He was, however, cleverer than all of them. He just had a really terrible PR department. And so we don't use most of his, or we did not use most of his inventions until many, many, many years later. He invented the death ray. I'm not making this up. He invented a death ray that actually works. Uh, Our military is experimenting with it right now. It's only taken really, you know, 90 years to catch up to the guy. He worked with uh, alternating current instead of uh, direct current or vice versa. I always get them backwards. Invented all wireless technologies. It's pretty amazing. He was, by all kind of standards, what we would think of as the great mad scientist. Right? The thing we're probably most familiar with of his inventions is the glass ball that has the glowing thing in the middle. And when you touch it, all of the electricity kind of shoots into the ball and makes your hair stand up. That's Tesla. It's a modified Tesla coil. The thing that amazes me, though, kind of working through, thinking through what this guy did, how he slept. And you're like, no, seriously, this guy's sleep schedule is amazing. He only slept in chunks of time from 20 minutes to two hours long and capped it at about five hours a day. And he died at 86. What he viewed was that sleep hindered his work. And so in all of his, you know, design studios, his labs and everything, he had a chair or a bench or a cot where when he just got too exhausted from his inventing, his designing, his sciencing or whatever it was, he could go rack out for like 45 minutes, pop back up and he was good for another 10 hours. It was completely unscheduled. The man literally worked until he couldn't, slept for as little as possible, popped back up and worked until he couldn't. Polyphasic sleep schedule is what it's called. And it's amazing to me because if I get just a little bit out of sleep rhythm too badly, I fall apart. One of the greatest minds in American science, and the dude just didn't sleep right. But part of the reasoning behind that for him was that everything had to be structured around his work. He had an understanding that he had been given one of the greatest minds in his generation. I suspect it probably surpassed Edison three times over. 
Again, terrible marketing department. But everything had to be shaped around his work. All of his life was dominated by his work. Everything, all of his money, all of his family, all of his sleep, all of his existence was reoriented around his scientific efforts. Driven, we might say. Single-minded, that's the polite way to say it. Focused, we might even go so far as to say consumed. Exodus chapter 12 sticks out in the book like a sore thumb, but in many ways functions for Israel as a portrait of Nikola Tesla, an attempt to reorient all of Israel's life around the living and true God. You have to understand, uh, they've had hundreds of years to forget who they were. Hundreds of years to forget what it means to be a Jew. Hundreds of years to forget about all of the stories they've been told, the true stories of how God worked for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They've had hundreds of years of listening to the stories of the gods of Egypt, the false gods of Egypt. They've had hundreds of years of drinking from the river of culture that flowed through Egypt, not from the God of the Bible. They've had hundreds of years to get confused. And it's interesting that in this book so far, we've been building and building and building and building. And we're, we're at the point where if you were writing the book, you would think this is where the climax to the story happens. I mean, we just had in chapter 10, the eighth plague, locusts, uh, nine, uh, you know, palpable darkness that you can feel. Ah, Eleven, the warning is given. Oh no, the tenth is coming. And you would think, well, okay, now chapter 12, here comes the plague. And as Westerners, if we're going to read this honestly and be emotionally honest in the process, we would kind of go... Why do we have an instruction manual now? Why, I mean, why do we have paragraphs instructing us how to do this thing? Why don't we hear the rest of the story? I mean, Moses, you've set us up. We're, we're on the edge of our chairs. We're waiting. What's going to happen? Is Israel going to be freed? Are the Egyptians going to be killed? What's going to take place? Here's how I want you to behave a thousand years in the future. It's not the the chapter we would expect to be here. Certainly as New Testament Christians and Westerners that don't have a good sense of uh, ritual and habit and uh, we'll call it religious law for practice, this chapter is interesting. But part of it, I would suggest, and the the primary thing, the way we're going to look at it is this chapter functions as that reorienting thing designed to kind of Get Israel's attention and to refocus them not on the gods of Egypt, as if the nine plagues previously didn't, 
but to refocus on a life that is entirely consumed and shaped by the Lord God. This begins just from the very beginning as he he explains to them how his relationship with them reorients everything in their life. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, verse 1, in the land of Egypt... This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year. Tell all of the congregation that on the 10th day of this month, every I love the fact that everybody's already gone, right? We're not even listening anymore. We start hearing months and days and years and the numbers and, and our ears just are like, and I'm out. I don't listen anymore. I'm gone. I don't pay attention to that stuff. I just want the action, right? I just want uh, the, the good story. I mean, I certainly never read the Bible that way at all, ever as a child, right? Read the book of Revelation probably ten times more than any other book in the Bible as a kid. There's actually a significant point here in these first couple verses as God begins this conversation with Moses and Aaron explicitly explaining the rules and regulations for how Passover is supposed to be kept. It's important to know what he does is to say, look, this is the beginning of the year. Everything else flows from this. This one feast, this most sacred of feasts, this one that is going to be paralleled eventually into Christ, the one that he himself is going to partake of just prior to his crucifixion, this feast is going to be the defining element of your calendar. It's pretty amazing. Again, you, you may not think about how kind of all of these things connect, but you know how Easter changes dates every year? Some years it's like really kind of three quarters of the way through March and we're all confused and like, what happened? And some it's like right near, you know, two thirds of the way through, halfway through April and everybody's kind of bonkers because your whole schedule is off. That's because it's all based on the cycle of the moon and when the new year starts, everything else hinges on this specific passage. It, it determines everything. The entire calendar is built around these months and these days and these cycles of the moon. Again, we hear that and kind of, again, our ears are, we're really impatient, aren't we? We stop paying attention when we hear months and days and dates. But for the Jew, this would have been significant because it would have said, look, maybe for the last 400 years, maybe you were operating on Egypt's calendar. I mean, it would make sense. I mean, it would be kind of weird if you walked up to the local Egyptian and was like, hey, where are you going to be next Thursday? And they're like, we don't have Thursday. I don't know what day Thursday is. We have whatever day, and I can't even make it up because I don't know what it is. Instead, God is saying, look, you're not going to operate on the calendar of the Egyptians. You're not going to operate as any of the other ways you would want to operate. You're going to operate on my terms, and not only on my terms, but my feast is going to be the defining element that shapes your entire year. Your basic calendar flows from the Passover. I mean, that's a reorientation of just fantastic proportions. I mean, just, this is not a one-to-one illustration, so please don't get hung up on it, but what would you think would have happened at 9-11 
If the president had stood up afterwards, and any president, doesn't matter which one, had said, you know what, that's such an important thing for American history. September 11th is going to be the new January 1st, and everything gets reprogrammed after that. that you, can you imagine just the emotional turmoil that that would be? Like, what year were you born? <laughs> I don't know anymore, because <laughs> I don't know what year it is now. <laughs> I mean, does, did you start over that? Did, what, uh, maybe, maybe I would be like, you know, 18 full years plus 21 part years. I don't know. Everything gets reshaped. The priorities are set. God is framing out for his people. He is the one who is to dominate all of their lives. And you think, well, that, I mean, that would be really bad, maybe, if he was a bad God, but he's a great God. And then the next priority that is to dominate the people of God, starting in verse 3 here. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, hang in there, we're going to get past the dates. 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's house, a lamb for a household to find out lamb or goat. And if the father, uh, sorry, if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his uh, nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat. You shall make account for your lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish. First priority, God frames out the entire year around his service. But it's interesting that the second priority is that it's framed out in the terms of an involvement with the people of God. This is intriguing to me. I mean, this is a a people that we're going to find out in a handful of chapters struggle with hard-heartedness and epic proportion. And it's interesting that what does the Lord challenge them to do is how are they going to fulfill it? It's fulfilled corporately. He's not challenging them in their individual faith, not challenging them in their individual walk. If the Passover is to be kept correctly, it will be kept with the people of God. And it's kept a number of different ways. Well, if your family is large enough and wealthy enough, well, you would keep it with your family. Now, again, remember, families uh, today, living situations didn't look like one specific narrow family living in a home. Look much more like my current living situation where you have multiple <laughs> generations all in the same house. It's a good thing. Kids getting to grow up with grandparents. If your house is big enough that you can support having a lamb or goat on your own, well, guess what? Your household does it corporately together. If you can't, what do you do? You go to your neighbor and you say, okay, neighbor, how many people you got in your house, Sean? Let's sort it out. What kind of animal do we need? And you've got a series of days to get the right size animal. Again, these animals would have been born this time of year, the year previous. So you're talking one year old. You're getting a male, mainly because shepherds don't like to keep male animals because they get cantankerous and they don't give birth or milk. So they're wonderful eating. Uh, And that's exactly what would have happened here. God's people would have taken this animal and then they would have shared it together. Did you catch that even at the end of the chapter? This is so intended to be a corporate activity amongst the people of God. Look at verse 24. You shall observe this right ordinance sacrament 
as a statute for you and for your sons, your children, forever. Verse 26, and when your children ask questions, you're supposed to answer them. Because the children are designed to be a part of this activity. Now, are they going to understand it all? Of course not. They're children. That's the whole point. It's designed to be this corporate activity where the people of God are built up together. Honestly, I was tempted to stop the sermon right there. And some of you are like, please do. (laughs) How the Lord, even in the Passover, just from these opening verses, are challenging God's people to say, look, your mission is to have your values reflect my values. And what are my values? In the most holy activity that you're going to partake of, my values are that God gets first and the people of God get second. That fits the American dream just perfect, doesn't it? Woo, yeah, all right. No, it doesn't. I'm sorry. This is a great challenge for God's people. I mean, this is a real hard thing if we're going to be honest and look at our own lives. To look at our own pattern of living. What are the trajectories of our lives? Is it God first and the people of God second? I mean, we're going to be honest. We're Americans. Man, we love ourselves, don't we? So full of ourselves. In fact, actually, I would suggest that we've done great harm to our understanding of the faith by placing the individual ahead of the corporate in most of our definitions. Certainly, you are saved by the faith that God gives you, works in you. It is a work of God. But it is interesting, the language of that is most often corporate. When you think of God's work, do you think of the corporate body? This is extremely important. To think about, you know, for these households, some of these would be maybe widows that don't have ahead of the household. What do they do? They're absorbed into the home of the neighbor next to them. What if you're barren, you've not been able to have children and you wouldn't have generations yet to pass on and as you age, what do you do? You're absorbed into the people of God, the households next to you. So that just as God orients every aspect of their lives around him, Those orientations are shaped together corporately as the people of God. I'll push it one step further. I think that there is a good stream of thought within Christendom right now, particularly kind of confronting the Western idea where we have actually hijacked the idea of family and placed family above the people of God to our detriment. Because weirdly enough, that's actually not the category here. Doesn't stop. I'm going to keep going and just let that one sit on you. So this reorientation around God and then the people of God, it, it then is used to be an instructive object lesson for God's people as to what salvation looks like. 
God understands most humans are not built to enjoy abstract thought. Talk about this all the time in seminary land, right? That's part of what you have to be able to do to make it through seminary, and it's what makes for terrible preaching. To think in abstract thought constantly all of the time, and God knows that is not how our feeble frame is made, and he gives us in front of us tangible object lessons to learn from. It's part of what the sacraments are. They are the word of God acted out in our midst with great power connected to them. And here he gives them over and over and over object lessons of salvation. Verses 5 and 7. Take a lamb without blemish, a male, a year old. Take it from the flock, keep it away from them, keep it for a period of time to make sure that you know that it's uh, healthy, to make sure that you know it's free from blemish, uh, and to make sure that you've actually planned correctly so you know you've got the right amount of food. And then all together the people of God shall kill their lambs between the two sunsets. And we think of that and we read that so sterile, don't we? <laughs> it's so sterile. Everybody had their own lamb and they fixed themselves dinner that night. And it was a great party. Woo! And it was. Except to think about how much blood we're talking about being spilled in one night. Jewish tradition says that they slaughtered them in groups of 30. So like households, 30 households would come together and have a great um, bloodbath. I mean, a slaughterhouse together and just massive quantities of blood everywhere. But again, what an object lesson of how salvation is going to operate, of how much effort they have to go through to think about which lamb they're going to pick. They have to keep it separate, or goat, keep it separate for a number of days to make sure it has no broken bones, to make sure it has no blemishes, to make sure it's healthy, to make sure it has no problems with it, to do this correctly. I love the fact that when you think about celebrating this in the future, uh, this first time they're given just a little bit of warning, but the next time they do it, you think that all of those shepherds would have been planning for months in advance, like, that's probably my lamb right there. I mean, he's adorable right now and bouncing around, and you know, if you watch how they go, it's amazing. Those things jump with straight legs, it's hilarious. But then to watch them grow over months and months and think, that's probably my one. This preparatory process to see perfection. What training that is for God's people so that when Christ shows up, they have a category. A category for perfection personified in their midst. That's an amazing gift that God has given them. So Jesus considers the Lamb. The Lamb of God, and they go, oh, I already have a category for that. A category for understanding perfection, even in my own midst. I mean, we have a category that we talk about all the time for perfection in our midst, and it usually means good enough for government work. <laughs> That's usually what we say, well, I was perfect. Let's be honest. Whenever somebody says, oh, it was perfect, they mean it absolutely was not perfect, but it was good enough. And it's interesting, God's giving them an object lesson so that every year they would be trained to think about what does perfection in their midst look like without blemish, 
without wound, without mistake, without error, so that when Jesus shows up, they understand or could have. He's teaching them even now. Verse 10, we're going to kind of skip around here just a bit. They go to eat it. This Passover lamb, the one that is perfect, without blemish, designed to feed your family and or the families around you that you would share with. Again, I suspect most uh, would have, I think sharing would have been probably the default, uh, largely because, uh, I mean, that's an expensive investment. Um, I suspect that you would, you would go in together. Verse 10, and you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning, you shall burn. The, the idea, again, categories that are being taught, the idea that God's provision of the lamb is enough. The idea that when they go to this celebratory feast, the salvation that God provides, that there's, there's nothing lacking, there's nothing left over, that when it's done, it's done. That you will be filled with God's provision and He will provide in its entirety. There's nothing left over. You don't have first Passovers and then second Passovers at like 2 in the morning and then third Passovers at like, you know, 8 in the morning uh, before breakfast actually happens. You no, know, it's once and it's enough. And then the interesting one, this is a little bit of the curveball, verses 8, 9, and 11. You eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire. Uh, roasting, maybe not the normal way to always eat meat. Uh, again, people who are uh, wealthy love the idea of barbecue and roasting uh, because it gives the best flavor. Uh, people who are poor boil everything so that all of the extra fat goes into the broth so that you can drink it and not lose any of the nutrients. Right? Only people who are have enough roast constantly. Instead, you're going to roast it so that uh, it will have uh, this speedy cooking process, and then you're going to eat it with bitter herbs. Bitter herbs are uh, plentiful because nobody wants to eat them. Right? They're the ones that you just go, oh, there's some right there. Uh, nobody wants to eat that, so yoink. Okay, let's mix that in with it. Uh, and then bread that is unleavened. And again, thinking about unleavened bread, uh, bread is actually, without refrigeration, it's difficult to keep unleavened. I mean, all it is is just yeast eventually gets in it, and yeast is blowing through this room right now, and uh, it kind of goes sour, and then it grows. And it's not actually that hard if you don't have refrigeration to get things with leaven. The point, again, here being highlighting the speed that all of this is taking place. And then the way that it's supposed to be eaten, fully dressed, belt on, sandals on, staff in hand. Again, a weird meal. I love how at the end of it, it says the kids are going to ask questions. No joke. <laughs> Dad, do I have to wear my winter coat? I don't want to eat in this. Why do I have to hold my staff? I can't hold my fork. <laughs> what is it, though? It's highlighting 
an object lesson for the people of God and go, well, what is that? What is the object lesson that the speed of the meal teaches them? It teaches you that God's judgment is not to be messed with. It teaches you that God's judgment is not to be messed with because when he says do it, you do it and you do it quickly, you do it now and you be ready. Because he is in this section saying, look, the the destroyer is coming upon Egypt. This is probably not the time to lollygag with your meal preparation. Some of you have that amazing ability that is just, it's like magic to me. That you can prepare the most unbelievably large and intensely rich meal and hit it on the nose. Some of you grew up in houses where you knew that if Thanksgiving dinner was going to happen at 1, you ate your snack at 1230 because the actual meal was going to be eaten somewhere in the neighborhood of 5 or 6. I would know nothing about that. What is it highlighting here? No, look, this is not to be messed around with. God's judgment is not something to be viewed as kind of frivolous of like, oh, oh, God will understand. Oh, it doesn't matter. No, 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 no. His judgment is serious. All right, we're going to go fast. As he's reoriented God's people to his own values and then given them object lessons in their hands and in their face and in their mouth about the salvation that God is uh, providing for them, he then gives them rules and regulations that help teach them what they are to be like. Verses 14 through 20 Give clear instruction as to what the lifestyle of God's people are to be like. And you would say, Michael, that is bizarre. Well, yeah, yeah, it is, but not really, actually, if you think about it. What this is teaching is verses 14 through 17 highlight that you're supposed to do this feast ad infinitum, in perpetuity. You're supposed to do this ritual feast that God has set aside because he has set aside this feast, you're supposed to do it forever and ever and ever and ever. Amen. Not because you understand it, not because you planned it, and weirdly enough, not even because it benefits you, you do it because he told you to. This is going to then be mirrored in the Lord's Supper in communion. You do it because he told you to. Now, there are blessings connected to it, yes, But you do it out of obedience. And this act of obedience is designed to, again, spread out and contaminate all of life. Verses 15 through 20, skipping verse 16, highlight this as it's expressing an object lesson about the holiness of God's people. On the first day, This is verse 16. I'm sorry, I'm going to go back to 15. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses. For if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. Now that's a fantastic phrase, cut off from Israel. Because that phrase, and commentators, this sends them into kind of fits. Because that phrase is the exact phrase that is used when applied to capital punishment. 
It's also the phrase that is used for exile. And I love how so many modern commentators are like, surely it can't mean that. It must just mean that their hearts are hard. No, it doesn't. This is the same language that's then picked up 1 Corinthians 5 that we already read. That was why that was in the order of worship. Set myself up for use later. New Testament version of this is excommunication. Old Testament version of it is it means you stop being Israel. You're cut off. You're marked as a pagan, as a Gentile, as an unbeliever for eating leaven. I don't know about you. I don't really enjoy crackers that much. But I love bread. Maybe you want to just fudge it a little bit, right? Man, that sourdough, it just, mmm, I want some. Can you imagine the excommunication for sourdough? Exile from the land of the Jews for just wanting some yeast rolls. Verse 16, this again frames out God's holiness, his design for his people. This is the one I just th- I think is so intriguing. On the first day, you shall hold a holy assembly. So that's, you know, Sabbath day. Yay, we're going to have church together. It'll be a holy special party. Yay. Seventh day, holy assembly. Yay, again. No work shall be done on these days. Again, that would be ex- expected. It's a Sabbath. You don't work. Except... For those of you that are preparing food, food has to be prepared because it's a feast, and we understand that's required on the Sabbath. God's explaining what it's supposed to be. And it's intriguing here that he is highlighting what is the antithesis of the feast that he's called for. Well, it's work. Specifically, Gentile work, we could call it. Holy work here, this preparation for God's assembly, preparation for God's activity. That's great work. That's a great way to spend your time. But having a day in life devoted unto the Lord. You see, what he's done here is he's he's actually walking us through the pattern of salvation. You may not have caught that. Here are God's priorities. Oh no, mine don't match. I need a savior. Oh, look, here's a lamb. Oh, now that I have the lamb, maybe I want to go back and live. No, you can't go back and live the way that you you originally did. So now you have to have a new pattern of life. And what does that new pattern of life look like? It looks like personal holiness and obedience to God's command. And you will say, well, you know what? I mean, that's, that's hard to do. Maybe that will just exhaust me. Maybe this obedience, this delighting in God, maybe I'm going to grow weary of it. And, you know, well, we all have times of backsliding. And it's interesting that God heads it off at the pass with this chapter, the way that it's framed out. What is the thing that then immediately follows it is a paragraph on being reminded of what God has done. Go take the elders, tell them this. Remind them that the plague is coming, the destroyer is coming. If you leave your house, it's your own fault. God is providing salvation. And by the way, your kids are going to ask about it. So tell them about God's salvation so that when their kids ask about it, they can tell them about God's salvation. So when their kids ask about it, they can tell about that salvation because this is the Lord's Passover. Passover. 
And I'm going to suggest that for some of you, these first three points of the sermon were very easy. I understand that God's priorities are that way. Mine sometimes don't match, but I understand that. I understand that Jesus Christ is the only Lamb of God, and He's the only one who pays for sin. I've got that. Good, you should. I hope so. I understand that personal holiness is required, but I'm just exhausted. I'm just tired. I mean, I, I want to do what's right, but I'm, I'm just weary. This is where this final paragraph is so important. Remember what God has done. Go back and recall what he is doing. It's intriguing how much of the Old Testament is simply telling the Old Testament over and over again. It's crazy to think about. You realize preaching through Mark's in the evening, Sunday evening is so difficult because almost all of the book of Mark is directly quoted in either Matthew or Luke. Again, it's designed so you remember to recall, to think about over and over again what God has done. For those of you that are weary in your faith right now, when was the last time you sat and spent an extended time thinking about what your life was like prior to conversion and what your life is like after? That's really good for you to do. To just think about how life is different, how how merciful our God is. To think about the, the multitude of ways that he has blessed us. To think about his kindness. To think about Christ. To think about the spirit of God living within us. You realize part of what God is saying here is part of the times we struggle with our holiness is because we're thinking about the wrong things. And there is a little bit of mental discipline that is required to actually tune our minds to the right things. And I'll just lovingly end with this. For some of us, this is the great challenge of our era. To turn our brains on and to devote them to the Lord. Because we live in a generation, I I suspect, I don't know because I haven't lived through all of human history. But I'm going to suspect, I'm going to go out and wager, we have more entertainments and diversions than any other humans in history to try to keep us from thinking. And then when we do think, it's to think in outrage about stupid things instead of thinking about the God of all mercy. The God of all mercy who appointed, even back then, he's already preparing categories so his son would show up so that salvation would be provided. And if you don't believe me, you think, oh, my brain's fully engaged, go back and read those months and days and tell me if you're actually being honest. Because realistically, we don't. We don't think well. And maybe that's our challenge for us. Let's thank God for his mercy and his word. Oh, God. What a message. That even prior to destruction, you had appointed object lessons to teach them the way of Christ. So that when he showed up and would explain himself to his disciples, they already had the categories. They already had the things to think. Father, we thank you that we do not have to think in these foreshadowing categories anymore, for we already have Christ. Oh Lord, please fill us with your spirit. That our lives would be transformed for we long to know you more fully than we do even now. For Christ's sake, amen.